You ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. I'm David French with Sarah Isker, and we've got a fantastic guest here today. I'm going to let Sarah introduce him. Um, and I just wish you all were listening to the green room before we went on the air. I can't disclose what was said, but it would have been just worth the entire the entire hour. Uh, but uh, this is a guest. It's uh, he's overdue. It's it's overdue to have him on the podcast. Uh, we we talked about him just a bit in our podcast with Akil Amar from Yale. And uh, Sarah, introduce our esteemed guest, please. He's shy, David. That's why he hasn't <laughs> been on the podcast, as you're about <laughs> to find out. Joining us today is Judge Michael Ludig. You've heard plenty about him on this podcast and everywhere else for that matter. Uh, but to run through a little bit of the bio, he, first of all, most importantly, I think, was born in Texas. So we can sort of stop <laughs> the bio importantly. there. Uh, now went to Washington and Lee's, a WNL grad, University of Virginia, uh, for his law degree. You must have been, we'll get to this, but one of the first clerks for Justice Scalia in the first class of clerks for him. But then you clerked a second time, violating my multiple clerkships rule, though perhaps this was a little bit before that was particularly en vogue. Uh, I learned this actually from Wikipedia, uh, I knew you were a burger clerk after you clerked for Scalia, but you were the co-executor of Burger's one-page will. That is a, a clerk relationship there. Uh, of course, you went on to the Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, and then you were appointed to the Fourth Circuit, becoming infamous. <laughs> and in fact, well, you left, you went into private uh, private law practice, general counsel. You've done several many things. You're really back in the public eye now talking a lot about um, Electoral Count Act. You advised Vice President Pence in the run-up to January 6th. We'll get, to, we'll get to various things. But my first question to you, Judge Ludig, is that for the years that you were on the Fourth Circuit, you're the, the people who clerked for you, it was infamous that if you clerked for Judge Ludig, it was the apotheosis of law school clerkships. And those people were called litigators. There was actually a term <laughs> for your clerks and your clerk family. I am not aware of any other judge that had a term for their clerks. Then, now, in the future, I'm curious where that came from, if you even know of how the litigator nomenclature arrived. Thank you, David. Thank you, Sarah. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on. I hope that that uh, that mantle uh, was not infamous, um, uh, as opposed to famous. Uh, but uh, uh, regardless, uh, it's not what I ever called my own law clerks. Uh, I couldn't say on this podcast what I usually called my law <laughs> clerks, uh, but it was not litigators. Uh, so where the the, the uh, etymology of the, of the term uh i have no idea and uh really? uh and of course from the judicial standpoint uh not that this matters to anyone in the world uh you know one's law clerks would never be called uh you know gators or 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 the name plus gators uh for a federal <laughs> judge because the law clerks you know they may or may not eventually be uh, litigators, which is the the play on the term, but in any event, uh, that's neither here nor there, and uh, I'm just glad to be with you today. And uh, I hope the viewer listeners understand that really the the synopsis of my um, my uh, resume was really uh, just to say that I'm old now. <laughs> well, but notably, you were the youngest. Uh, judge, 37, on any of the circuit courts at the time you were appointed. That was then. Which, 37 on the Fourth Circuit. And, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's some fascinating story here. You and John Roberts are serving in the Department of Justice together. 
And I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but give or take, you both get nominated around the same time, but his nomination gets stalled and you make it onto the Fourth Circuit. And he has to wait another 10 years to get on the D.C. Circuit. So you got a 10-year jump on him. Yes, I drew the short straw. (laughs) Uh, John and I were um, um, very close friends uh, uh, in, in, in those years. And, and continue to be uh, close friends, though, of course, because of his position, you know, we don't get to talk nearly as often as we as we did back then. Um, but yes, I, I actually uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that that Boyd and Gray was the, the sponsor of, of both of us for the uh, courts of appeals, although. Uh, if you go back and do your research, I think Boyden was gone at the time, by the time that John was ultimate, ultimately nominated. But Boyden, for instance, called me at that time and 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 uh, to brainstorm about how we could get uh, get uh, our friend John uh, uh, renominated and, and put on the uh, the Court of Appeals. And you, of course, worked on the Clarence Thomas uh nomination, confirmation, and suitor, right? Correct, both, both of them. Uh, you know, the uh, um, my uh, dear friend who recently passed away, Ken Duberstein, uh, was uh, uh, um, uh, chosen by the White House to, to be the political Sherpa, if you will, of, of both of those uh, men through the, through the Senate. Um, and at the same time, uh, I was... Uh, named by the White House as the, uh, um, call it the legal Sherpa, um, uh, through the Senate process. So you know a couple branches of government, David. That's the yeah, point. I brought, you, I brought you an expert. Go. <laughs> and, and not only do we have an expert, we have somebody who is at the center of national controversy and one of the most contentious moments in modern American history. Judge, you've already testified before the January 6th committee, and we can put that in the show notes. Um, But for those who did not see your testimony, there was a time, and this is going to be an entree into our discussion about the Electoral Count Act, there was a time in December 2020, I believe it was in December, wasn't it, when you were first contacted, um, where all of a sudden your thoughts about the Electoral Count Act became of vital national importance. So if you could kind of walk through that story a little bit um, as we walk into this discussion about uh, the Electoral Count Act and the 2024 election and saving the republic, <laughs> um, wh- what happened uh, and, and you know what role did you play? The first call um, actually came to me on the evening of January 4th. Fourth, uh, David, uh, I, and, and I was out in Colorado, uh, where we have a place, and um, and was not really following things closely, though I had been following the run up to um, the former president's uh, uh, effort to overturn the election. And I got a call that night from a, a dear, dear friend, Richard Cullen, who uh, has been had been at that point. Uh, Vice President Pence's outside counsel, uh, if you will, for uh, the better part of the administration, prim- brought in primarily for uh, to advise the vice president uh, for the uh, duration of the Robert Mueller investigation. But in any event, Richard Cullen and I had gone had gone back 20, 30 years at that point. It, we had actually been talking almost uh, multiple times every day for the past two years, um, in, in, in January of 2021, uh, uh, about everything uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, because uh, we had mutual friends, uh, including uh, then Attorney General William Barr. Uh, and so um, I was involved with a lot of things in Washington that, in that year, year and a half, lead up to, to January 6th. But re- that's a long way of saying that when Richard called me um, the night of January 4th, it was really not, no big deal at all. And he said, uh, uh, he calls me judge, which, uh, you know, is fine. Uh, he says, uh, judge, uh, um, you know, um, do you know John Eastman? 
And uh, I said, yes, I, I know John. And and uh, he said, well, what do you think about him? And I said, uh, you know, I don't know, Richard. I mean, John clerked for me about 20, 25 years ago. Um, he's, a, um, you know, a, a constitutional scholar of, of high order. Um, he's, a, you know, a, a brilliant uh, intellect, um, you know, conservative, you know, man, um, a, a man who was uh, uh, older than most of my clerks were at the time that, that, that he clerked with me. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're friends. And, uh, and I said, why, why are you asking? And he said, uh, you, you don't know, do you? And I said, I guess I don't. And he said, well, uh, the, uh, John Eastman is, uh, is advising the president and the vice president right now that, uh, that the vice president has the, uh, the authority on January 6th to um, uh, dismiss, not count, <laughs> Uh, you know, the electoral, uh, some of the uh, electoral uh, college votes from uh, six or seven of the swing states. And um, uh, and I said, no, I, I had not known that John was was advising the president. And uh, uh, I said, uh, you know, me, I, I usually have a view on things, uh, uh, <laughs> particularly on things of of some gravity and consequence, if I've had time to think about them, I, I don't ever shoot from the hip, as Sarah knows. But, uh, but I, I, you know, I, I, I had a view on that, and I said uh, that night to Richard, I said, uh, "Well, you can tell the vice president that I said that that he has no such authority at all, uh, that, that he's uh, uh, required by the Constitution." Um, and the Electoral Count Act of, of 1887 uh, to uh, uh, count the uh, electoral votes as they've been cast by the Electoral uh, College. Uh, he doesn't have the, the, the power or authority to, to, to do anything otherwise. And Richard said, uh, uh, well, thank you. I've already told him that's your view. Uh, and I said, oh, okay, well, then fine. Um, uh, you know, uh, tell the vice president Richard that uh, that I would be glad to help in any any way I can, but but I, I don't I don't have any any idea how I could help him at this point. This is the night of January fourth, and I, and and in in retrospect, we now know that that uh, I believe that that was one of the the two fateful meetings in the Oval Office. Uh, during which uh, uh, the president, the vice president, uh, the vice president's chief of staff, Mark Short, and, and John Eastman uh, were in attendance, and 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 John uh, made his case to the president and the vice president that uh, the vice president could do what what uh, the former president was asking him to do. Uh, I did not know that at the time, so um, I, I, the call came while my wife and and I were having a dinner. Uh, out here in Colorado, and so it was probably, I would guess, eight or nine o'clock there in in Washington D.C. So when I hung up, my wife, uh, you know, of forty years, you know, who knows everything and knows my every thought, uh, said uh, something like, "What on earth was that?" Uh, and uh, I I told her, and she said, you know. Oh my God! Uh, uh, and she said, uh, as she is wont to do, um, she said, "You've got to do something uh, here." And I said, "Well, I really have nothing whatsoever to do with this, and and there's no chance in the world that I ever would have anything to do with it." I, you heard me say what I said, and that will go back to the vice president, and then that's it. Uh, well, we continued to talk about it over dinner, and then thereafter. And uh, and uh, and Elizabeth said, "Look, you have to you have to say something publicly." And I said, "It's it's really just not my role at all, you know, to say anything publicly." And 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 as incidentally, no one would care if I did say anything publicly. Um, and uh, but she, you know, she she continued to to uh, <laughs> harass me uh, through the evening, uh, and then you know, finally, uh, as we went to bed, she. 
you know, she made one last plea and said, look, you know, this is this is a ser- serious matter and, and you need to uh, you need to speak up. And and I said, look, hon, I, I just I understand. I agree. I've said what I could say to the most important, important figure in the world at the moment, and that's to the vice president. And there's just nothing else I can do. And uh, we went to bed. So the, the morning of January 5th, um, I get up early uh, around 4.30. And so um, uh, that's probably about the time Sarah gets up. Uh, <laughs> that is and, the dead middle of the night, Judge. <laughs> and um, so I was having my coffee here, you know, probably 5.30, maybe 6. And Richard calls again. And... Uh, uh, and this time, he, you know, he says, uh, Judge, uh, we, we have to do something. Uh, and, and we have to do something quickly. And I said, uh, well, what do, you, what do you mean? And, and he said, well, we've got to help the vice president um, uh, right away. And I said, well, Richard, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, and he said, well, the, uh, the vice president's meeting with uh, uh, then President Trump in the, in the Oval Office on, uh, for lunch on the 5th. And at that point, you know, the vice president's going to, to, to tell the president, I think, again, that, that he was not going to uh, uh, overturn the election as the president wanted him to do. And, uh, and Richard said, uh, um, we've got to do something fast. And I said, Richard, I, I, I really don't even know what you're asking. Um, uh, what, what do you mean? We, who, uh, and, and, and what are we supposed to do? And he said, I, I don't really know. Uh, and I said, uh, uh, well, if you don't know what we're supposed to do, how, do, how am I supposed to know what we're supposed to do? And he said, uh, he said, well, look, this is urgent. And I said, I understand. And he said, um, We've got to get your voice out to the country uh, somehow. And I said, uh, I said, good grief, Richard. Um, uh, you know, I don't even have a job at the moment. Um, <laughs> and and I, I don't I don't have an office. I don't have a platform. I, I don't even have a fax machine out here in um, uh, in Colorado. Um and I don't even understand. I wouldn't know how to get my voice out to the country if I thought I wanted to get my voice out to the country. Uh, and he said, uh, uh, OK, I'll call you back in five minutes. And I said, well, you can call me back every five minutes if you want, but I, I, I don't have any idea what you're even talking about. So he calls back in five minutes with with even added urgency and says, have you thought of anything? And I said, no, I really haven't. I've just been finishing my coffee here. And uh, and he said, I'll call you back in five more minutes. Um, and, you know, I mean, even though I get up early, this was, you know, still before 6 a.m. And and, uh, you know, my mind was working, but, it you know, it was slowly slower. and. Uh, he calls me back and says, have you thought of anything? I said, no. And he says, uh, look, I can, I, 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 I'll call back in 10 minutes, but we have to get this done right away. And uh, so he called back in 10 minutes and, and I, he said, have you thought of anything? And I said, well, I just opened a Twitter account a couple of weeks ago, um, but I don't know how to tweet. And, uh, and he says, that would be perfect. And I said, well, what did you not understand? I, I, I don't know how to tweet. And he says, this is it. This is what you have to do. Uh, you know, call me back right away and, and tell me uh, what you're going to say. And so I, we hung up and uh, uh, I typed out on my iPhone, you know, exactly actually what, what was the tweet? And I called him back and, and uh, I said, look, uh, this is what I'm going to say. And, and he said, uh, uh, it's okay. Whatever it is, is okay. And I said, uh, uh, well, no, no, I'm not doing this unless the vice president 
himself approves every word. And Richard says, uh, um, I said, well, that's just not going to happen. It's not necessary. And I said, well, it's necessary for me, Richard. Um, you know, I'm, I'm well aware of this moment in history. And if you think I'm going to tweet something on this issue, you know, to the world uh, without the vice president agreeing to every word, you're just mistaken. And he said, uh, you know, he was a little bit impatient and said, okay, I'll call you right back. And uh, he calls me right back and he says, whatever you say will be fine. And I said, no, it's not, uh, because I want the approval. And he said, uh, look, Judge, uh, that we don't have much time left. I'm giving you my word that whatever you say will be fine. And I said, well, Richard, I don't like this one bit, and I don't appreciate you putting me in this position, but but I'm going to do it. And he said, okay, uh, let me know as soon as you've done it. So I go downstairs, and and, and then that begins a process that we won't go into in great detail, uh, wherein I try to figure out how to tweet, you know, I don't even know what the right words are, multiple tweets in a single tweet thread or, you know, some some something like that. Uh, well, I didn't know how to do that. I only knew that I had 140 characters or 160 or whatever. You know, so I get my son on the phone and I say, look, I got to send a multi bunch of tweets. I just said a bunch of tweets all at once. And he said, uh, like every 25 year old to their parents, he said, uh, I don't have time for this, dad. You know, um, you know, you need to learn how to do this. You're just a, a, a dinosaur. And I, and I said, well, look, I don't have time for this either, John. You either tell me how to do this or I'm going to cut you out of the will. <laughs> and uh, and he said, uh, grudgingly, he said, uh, OK, I, I'm going to send you the Twitter instructions right now. And he did. So I followed those instructions uh, and uh, and, you know, proofread 10 times over uh, and and eventually pushed the button, uh, David, that said tweet. And um, I had no earthly idea I, th- that anyone would ever see it. And uh, um, so about 10 minutes later, Richard calls back and says, uh, uh, it's on the front page. Your tweet's on the front page of the New York Times. And I said, what? What, what, what are you even talking about? And, and, uh, and he said, uh, you can pull it up right now. And so I pulled it up and, uh, you know, and, and, the front, and the New York Times had, had the tweet. And, uh, and I didn't even, I didn't even care at that point. I just, I said, all right, Richard, whatever. And, uh, uh, and, and that's the story of the tweet, David. So let's fast forward then. We now, two years later, everyone agrees the Electoral Count Act is a disaster. The Senate has come up with some language to replace it. It would clarify the vice president's role. Uh, It would raise the bar for objections to one-fifth of both houses versus where we before we had just one and one, one member in uh, each house. Mark Elias, the Democratic lawyer, says he hates it. Uh, plenty of other Democrats, Bob Bauer, for instance, uh, various law professors have uh, criticized Mark Elias's criticism, saying he, uh, paraphrasing here, doesn't know what he's talking about, which would not be <laughs> that unusual in this case. Um, but I think there's a couple questions here. One, so for instance, it also says that the uh, governor's slate of electors will be sort of presumptively the correct slate, things like that. Are we, A, are we fixing the right problems? B, are we fixing them enough? And C, and this is the Akhil Amar question, at the end of the day, what this does is fast tracks any problems, anything in a close election to the Supreme Court. Akhil Amar says, no, it should be decided by both houses of Congress. And uh, I'm curious what you think of this draft legislation generally. I guess you call that a question. 
I do. It's like a it's a seventeen part question. Um, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a it's a reporter's question. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, where where to start? Um, uh, first, first, uh, you know, I had to have a at least a um, a grounded understanding of the Electoral Count Act uh, together with the Twelfth Amendment. Uh, and and actually a rudimentary understanding of the independent state legislature uh, theory of constitutional interpretation uh, on January 5th before I, before I tweeted the advice that the, the vice president did not have any authority uh, to do what the former president wished. Um, so then if you, if, if you fast forward from then to uh, a year ago, uh in in Mar- march of 2021 uh i i actually wrote a, an op-ed in the wall street journal with my friend david rifkin uh we read it on this podcast nearly in its entirety yes we did <laughs> we did indeed well thank you uh <laughs> and uh uh i think that that we had for the first time you know to my knowledge said that the act was unconstitutional uh we, we do, having done our research, we, we concluded that that there was not only no evidence that the, the, the founders intended Congress to play a role uh, in the in the, the quote choosing, you know, of, of the uh, the president, uh, but there was a you know affirmative evidence that Congress did not want Congress to play any role uh, other than a ministerial role in in the uh, selection selection of the president. So we concluded that. Uh, that the act uh, of the Electoral Count Act of 1887, uh, which is the current law today, uh, was uh, uh, was unconstitutional to the extent that it that it gave Congress uh, the authority. Congress gave itself the authority uh, in the act to decide the presidency in a in a host of of, of different circumstances. Uh, so uh, we wrote that uh, and. I don't remember anyone uh, having a a serious rejoinder to that uh, op-ed uh, that 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 we at least took seriously. Um, and then you uh, and then then uh, about a year plus ago, um, I began uh, uh, receiving calls from various uh, senators and uh, staffs of senators and House members. Uh, uh, asking me if I would, you know, uh, talk to them about reform of the Electoral Count Act, and of course I said I'd be more than glad to. So, uh, so I started each of those, um, you know, ten, fifteen conversations uh, by saying to 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 the staffs, "Look, I I don't know that you'll ever be able to amend the act for the simple reason that uh, all senators and all House members." would like to be able to decide the presidency when they want to decide it. I said, the, the only hope you ha- that, that you have in, in, in amending the act is that those people who want to, to be able to decide the presidency when they want to don't want the, the other party members to be able to decide the presidency when they want to decide the presidency. Uh, and, uh, and I put it probably a little more elegantly and clearly, uh, and, and all the, all the staff nodded affirmatively and said, yes, that's, that's a problem. The, the problem being that, that the politicians on Capitol Hill, they, they do want to be able to decide the presidency whenever, whenever they can. Um, and that, that's fine. You know, they're politicians. That's, that's the way they think. Uh, but I began about a year and a quarter ago uh, advising and consulting with various of the staffs, uh, including, um, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school, uh, uh, the, um, the bipartisan group of, of senators who, who most recently have, have made their proposal. So uh, turning then to the substance uh, of the proposal, um, this is not the way you start to amend legislation, but as a practical and political matter, this is how you start this amendment. 
which is uh, how do we prevent another January 6th? Uh, well, to prevent another, and, and, and by the way, our op-ed in the Wall Street Journal was entitled that Congress sowed the seeds of January 6th in 1887 via the, the, the Electoral Count Act. Uh, and and that's, that's been my view ever since January 6th, that, that, that it was the, the Electoral Count Act that created the the, the moment of January 6th. Had there not been an, an, an Electoral Count Act, I don't believe January 6th would have occurred for this reason. Assume hypothetically that Congress had no role whatsoever on January 6th. Would there really have been, uh, well, first off, there would never have been a, a riot or attack on the Capitol for the purpose of disrupting the, the, the count. Why? Because the world would have understood that Congress could not do anything but count the, 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 uh, the electoral votes from the states. But under the Electoral Count Act, as, as we all know, Congress on that day actually could have determined the presidency by uh, taking objection to various electoral slates from the swing states and um, uh, affirming the objections, uh, thereby rejecting the electoral uh, votes from those swing states and awarding the presidency to, uh, to Donald Trump. That's just as a factual and legal matter under the Electoral Count Act, Congress could have done it. And of course, as, as we know, uh, any number of mem- members and senators tried to do that, uh, acting pursuant to the Electoral Count Act. Um, in the Senate, it was uh, uh, Senator Hawley and Senator Cruz. Uh, and, and in the House... Wait, we need it- a little asterisk there, because Senator Cruz clerked for you. He is a litigator. This caused any bit of controversy on Twitter. I did not put that asterisk in, nor would I have. You tweeted uh, about it? I didn't tweet about the fact that he was my law clerk, as you'll remember. <laughs> no. uh, I, it was, but everyone else noted it. it I know. Yes, it. yes. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that was a you know, he did what he did, and Holly did what he did, and uh, but our point today is, Congress could have awarded the presidency to Donald Trump on January sixth. And 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 every everyone who rioted the Capitol, most importantly, the person who knew that was possible was Donald Trump, and and that's why he he, he uh, I'm only going to use the word urged uh, <laughs> his supporters and allies to march to the Capitol and disrupt the, the count. Um, so with that that long background, uh, turning to the legislation, so. If you want to stop uh, or prevent to the maximum extent possible uh, another January 6th, you, you have to attack the issue from, from both ends, if you will. One, the congressional end. Uh, but secondly, and as importantly, you have to attack it from the state end of, of the process. So turning to the, uh, the legislation, and the congressional end uh, of the process, what this legislation does um, uh, is, uh, through a number of amendments, uh, minimize to the maximum extent politically possible uh, the role of Congress. And, and, And it does that by addressing literally the powers of Congress on January 6th, but also in limiting the the electoral slates that will be forwarded to Congress to count from the respective states. So as to the congressional end of it, as as Sarah noted, uh, under the existing act, 
a single member of the House and Senate can object to an electoral slate and force the decision uh, as to that slate into uh, um, the individual joint session, but individual houses of of the House and the Senate for decision. Uh, Once that, those two objections, just two objections to a a single uh, state slate, take Pennsylvania, in this case, it could have been Arizona, could have been Georgia, could have been any of others, but take Pennsylvania with, with a lot of uh, electoral vo- electoral votes. Uh, one person in the House, one person in the Senate could force the entire Congress of the United States to an up or down vote on, on, on whether to accept that state's electors. Uh, and in the new legisl- in this legislation, uh, as Sarah noted, the uh, um, the bipartisan uh, group of senators ratchets that number who are necessary uh, in order to force the decision into the joint houses to twenty percent of each house, which is a a significant number. I had earlier written, I think, in the uh, first in the New York Times that. That, that, that that number should be ratcheted up uh, to as high a number as politically palatable. 20%, um, look, I, I'm indifferent. I don't care. 20% is a lot. If they could get 50%, I would be, I would be, be happier. Um, so, so, and, and then, then as to their own power, they actually, the, the bipartisan group actually limits the grounds for objection, not just the numbers of people who need to object, but the actual grounds to objection, uh, essentially to to a single ground or two where the electors are not the electors or are arguably not the electors that were chosen by the state uh, and officially certified by the state, and and so uh, in, under the existing act, the there were uh, two undefined, ambiguous grounds on which anyone could object and sustain the objection. So this is a vast improvement uh, already in, with this proposed legislation. So then turning then to the to the other end of the process, and I would just repeat, to, to, to successfully amend this act so as to prevent another January 6th, you, you must address both ends, Congress and the state. So as to the state end of, of this process, this legislation uh, just tightens down uh, the screws uh, on the state process for the appointment uh, uh, and uh, of, of electors and, and for the uh, uh, electoral votes in, in several, several different ways, key of which are, are these. Uh, the, the first, uh, which Sarah also mentioned, is that this legislation uh, identifies the executive of the state uh, as the certifying individual. So a, every slate of electors that's transmitted to Congress must be certified by the governors of the states or in the case of the District of Columbia, the mayor. Um, so, but, but ne- what it does next is the most important thing. Uh, well, no, let, let me say first, and and what it does is it Congress, which it can do through its its constitutional power under the electors clause and the elections clause, can time and sequence the various actions that are necessary before transmittal of the state's electoral uh, uh, votes to Congress, uh, so that. Everything is done 
from the election to the to January 6th and completed in order that the slate certified by the governor and transmitted to Congress is the uh, conclusive state, uh, uh, conclusive certification in the words of this, of this, uh, of this legislation. So then to the point that, that's the substantively the most significant, um, this legislation, and this is what I had urged from day one, um, and it's very interesting as a matter of constitutional law, but, but I had urged from the very beginning, uh, including in the Wall Street Journal op-ed now, now that I recall, that all disputes in the states over the electors, all of them, should be decided by uh, the federal courts. There are two choices. There, there are two choices in this uh, process. Uh, three. Um, you, you, right now, <laughs> the, you have the, the disputes are decided first in the states and then eventually in Congress. And the Electoral Count Act, as we've just discussed, uh, presupposes multiple slates coming from individual states, which is a disaster. And it's particularly a disaster if you if you if you if you understand what gave rise to the Electoral Count Act of 1887 in the first place, which was the election of 1876, where multiple states submitted uh, competing electoral slates to Congress, and Congress, of course, had no earthly idea what to do with that, and ended up uh, establishing a commission, if you can even imagine. To, to, a commission uh, uh, of uh, three, three or four, three Supreme Court justices and and other judges and uh, and other it's just what Congress always does, you know, is create a committee. And uh, uh, but in this instance, it was a committee to decide literally who the next president would be, you know, Hayes or Tilden. So with that. Uh, chaotic experience uh, before them, this con- that Congress in 1887 decided to, to uh, by law, just establish the guidelines by which Congress would decide when electoral slates are, are, are submitted. So it was a disaster from the outset. But in this new legislation, um, all disputes have to be resolved in the in the federal courts, eventually in the federal courts, uh, by a date certain, which would allow uh, the governor to certify the uh, electoral slate to Congress before the designated day that the electors meet to cast their votes for the presidency, which, which you know, heretofore has been around mid-December sometime. But I know this got long-winded, so let me sum it up this way. In this legislation, all issues, all questions, all disputes as to the electoral slates from a given state have to be decided by the federal courts ultimately by a date certain in time for the governor to transmit a single electoral slate that's conclusive uh, to Congress. And that's the case for all all states under the the legislation. This is, um, it's it's about as much as perfect uh, an amendment to the act uh, as is politically achievable in my view. Um, I've seen the uh, I, I've seen some of the Twitter exchanges um, between and among the likes of, of Mark Elias and uh, and Seligman and others who, who truly are experts. Okay, um, and uh, uh, I was surprised when I first read Mark Elias's tweet analysis. Uh, I 
I, I shared his goal and his objectives, but I didn't think that that his uh, criticism uh, were were well taken under the act. Um, but I just wanted to address that since you raised it, Sarah. So um, we we've taken up a, a lot of your time, Judge. So I don't want to take up much more. But there's one other thing uh, I want to raise, and that is. You, along with a number of other conservative legal scholars, put out a very comprehensive study of the 2020 election itself called Lost, Not Stolen, the conservative case that Trump lost and Biden won the 2020 presidential election. And we'll put that in the show notes so that people can read it for themselves. But if you could kind of tell us uh, about that report, you don't have to walk through it, but how does this come about? Why did you do it? My involvement came about uh, through um, my longtime friend, Tom Griffith, who fairly recently re- uh, resigned from the uh, uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Uh, although um, former Judge uh, Michael McConnell and I are also dear friends going back uh, to the Reagan administration, uh, but but Tom called me one day, uh, let's say four or five months ago, I think, and said, "Look, this is what we need to do," uh, and and uh, which is explain to you know conservative deniers of the election that actually Trump lost the election and that it was not stolen from him, uh, and. Uh, at the time, and for several months after that, uh, David, I uh, I told Tom, I said, look, Tom, the people who believe the election was stolen don't care, um, and and uh, and they're not going to care one whit what we say. Uh, they the election was stolen in their view. They're certain of that, and and. Some report by you know a couple of federal judges is isn't going to make a difference. Um, so I took that position for several months um, until one day, for reasons that I, I I don't care to discuss here, but related to my friendship with Tom, I said, "Look, Tom, you know we've spent a lot of time together in this life. If you want me to uh, add my name to this, I'd be glad to." Um, and and I did. And so we got, uh, at the time, uh, the the originators of the project were Tom Griffith, Michael McConnell, the two former judges, um, uh, Ben Ginsburg, and David Hoppe, and also David Becker, I believe. And and then we ended up uh, adding uh, just several more signatories, uh, you know, carefully chosen to include Ted Olson, former Solicitor General, and uh, uh, former Senator Jack Danforth, uh, and and former Senator Smith. Um, and uh, what we did in that report uh, was analyze every single claim brought in in federal court uh, by Trump and his supporters uh, in, during the 2020 election cycle. Uh, and... Uh, and then we also analyzed all of the audits in the respective states post-election, and we concluded that the, that there there was very little fraud at all, and certainly nothing, no fraud uh, anywhere close to sufficient to change the vote, even in a single precinct, uh, let alone a state, let alone in the nation. Um, and uh and and so we 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 published the report recently uh and uh it's it's been well and widely received but our target audience david was really just uh um a, a fraction of, of the of the conservatives who believe that uh, the election was stolen uh, we're hoping we hope to to peel those people away from this uh this utter nonsense that, that that President Trump actually won the election in a landslide, to use his words. 
I think that is a great place to end this conversation. Judge Ludig, thank you so much for joining us and for all of your time this morning. We appreciate it. We appreciate all the stuff that you're writing and saying and doing on the Electoral Count Act. And uh, we will be watching as the House introduces their version, as these compromises move forward, and hopefully something gets signed into law, certainly before 2024. But I'd like it done well before then. Thank you. It's been my honor to be on with the two of you. Thank you, Judge. So, Sarah, the, the judge has spoken, and it seems like, from his perspective, the Electoral Count Act reform is about as good as he thinks we're going to get through this uh, imperfect process of democratic compromise. Uh, what, do, what do you think? Ugh, I have lots of thoughts. So, first, I think he's a little bit wrong on it's as good as we're going to get. I think there's some parts of this that are great. As in, they're not just compromises. I think I disagree a little on the, you know, 20% versus 50%. I think 20% is perfect. I don't think you want it to be 50% because I think when you, because we live in this equilibrium two-party system, 50% turns into a partisan game. 20% actually means that people will have to still think about their vote individually. Um, anyway, so that, that type of thing I really like. I am still very torn on the structural constitutional analysis at the end of the day. Do you want courts resolving this question or do you want Congress resolving this question? And there's a few reasons for that. Obviously, there's the institution of the court getting dragged into close uh, elections, which hasn't turned out particularly well. But there's also the problem of trying to solve January 6th, which frankly, we shouldn't be trying to solve. January 6th already happened. The question now is getting the super smart people in a room and saying, what are all the other scenarios and what's the best thing we can come up with that could address those? And generally speaking, that's going to be sort of a philosophical structure, not a uh, rifle shot situation. So again, I think saying that the governor's slate of electors is the presumptive slate of electors, which takes the Electoral Count Act and just makes that part more clear without the 19 commas and, you know, 237 words to say it. I think structurally that's probably right versus, for instance, the state legislature or something else. Uh, on the one hand, governors are one person. On the other hand, um, that one person wins a statewide election. They tend to be pretty serious people. You know, there's it's always easy to point out the exception of why this won't work. So, for instance, uh, one of the criticisms has been, okay, but what if Doug Mastriano wins the governorship in Pennsylvania and then he just certifies a Trump slate no matter what? Yep. That's why it matters who we elect. Uh, you know, like that's <laughs> right. why Democrats shouldn't have spent millions of dollars propping up his primary win. Um, but also presumptive slate is not necessarily then the accepted slate, of course. That's what that 20% threshold is for. And that's why, at least in this version of the bill, it would then get thrown on a fast track with a three-judge panel, um, potentially directly to the Supreme Court. I think that's all about right. I don't know what I would change in it at this point. Um, what did you think, David? I think, how should I say this with appropriate nuance and sophistication? If we do not pass this, we're lunatics. <laughs> so, now, I don't mean that we can't tweak this part of it or that part of it. Uh, but what I like about it is it, it exists. It, is, it exists. <laughs> it's got a lot of bipartisan support. It, look, I agree with you completely. We can't sit there and just say, okay, our goal is to prevent another January 6th because next time it'll be something different. I think the way, what you do is you say, the goal is to make the law clear to make it more difficult for corrupt people to achieve corrupt purposes, um, and to just, let's be frank, get rid of that 809-word paragraph, single-paragraph monstrosity that is the Electoral Count Act. But a single act of Congress can't, for instance, prevent a corrupt person from doing corrupt things. Right. That's why we, as the electorate, have actually a very high responsibility and civic duty to vote for not corrupt people. And then you build a system that hopes to rein in those impulses, create incentives not to be a POS, 
But at the end of the day, if someone corrupt becomes president and then there's a corrupt Senate and House, I mean, it, yeah. yeah, the Constitution doesn't save you from that. Yeah, you can't corruption proof the political process. You can just make it harder for corrupt people to be corrupt. I mean, that's and that's what this does. And the thing that I also like about it is the expedited judicial review so that you've got, you know, it, it, you're going to have immediate federal court uh, opportunity to get in federal court. You're going to have fast tracks to the Supreme Court so that even if you do have a Mastriano type character in the, in the governor's mansion in Pennsylvania, he's not going to have carte blanche. There's still going to be legal hurdles he's going to have to surmount. Again, you can't firewall away all of his corruption. You can just make it more difficult. And the thing that's so sobering that I thought Judge Ludig did a good job of describing was how under the current Electoral Count Act, as of right now, a majority of the House and Senate can just go ahead and overturn an election under the Electoral Count Act. They can just flip it around. They can overturn it. This dramatically restricts that kind of discretion. Um, and so I think it's just, it's just an absolute no-brainer. The Mark Elias critique, I mean, come on, man. Come on, man. To quote, to quote the President of the United States, come on, man. Um, it's, it seems to me to be, it, and what's going to be interesting to me, Sarah, is what will the final votes be? As of right now, there's nine Republicans that have signed on to this publicly, uh, one short of the filibuster-proof majority. i optimistic we'll cross that threshold, but I'm not certain. That's why I think I might have to uh, do a newsletter tomorrow uh, in the spirit of the newsletter I wrote all the way back on January 4th that says, stop screwing around and reform the Electoral Count Act and say something like, don't be idiots, vote for the Electoral Count Act reform. Well, we still need a House version that we're waiting on, and yes. that'll be interesting to see how far apart those are. Um, and that could either, in some ways, fast-track it getting passed or really slow it down, in my view. And what's funny is that one way that it could get really slowed down is if the House version is very good, if that makes <laughs> sense. If you yeah. end up with two totally reasonable versions of how to do this, and then it's like, well, but my version's a little bit more reasonable than your version. It should be 25% instead of 20%. Right. And then we sit there and spend six months, you know, until we get to 22% or something. Uh, that, that would be a waste of everyone's great efforts here. Because again, David, as you said, this something is far, far better than nothing. Oh, so much better. Which, I, which is rarely the case with legislation. And yet... <laughs> It's, Here we are. it's a rare and wonderful thing to see, so let's not squander it. Including Nancy Pelosi, don't listen to voices in your caucus saying, oh no, it's not enough to just reform the Electoral Count Act. We also have to reform voting in general throughout the United States of America. You've tried that already. You took your shot with H.R. 1. It, isn't, it didn't pass. It's not going to pass. Now focus on the thing that can pass. Because... Quite literally, I don't know that we would see a re direct replay of January 6th, but until this Electoral Count Act reform is passed, we're going to have January 6th adjacent possibilities. I think the absolute most important thing is to raise the threshold for objections, yes. because I think we will see one member of each um, House of Congress object for the forever. <laughs> yes. Because if your person loses this is now going to happen on either side. If Trump wins the uh, election fair and square in 2024, 20% of Democrats, I think, would probably object regardless. So let's at least make it 20% on that. Although, again, I think 50% actually oddly could have a, a backfiring effect. If you yeah, that's an interesting thought. That's an interesting thought. You've intrigued me, Sarah. You've intrigued me. But I'm great with 20%. It is so much better. It is so much better. I have a treat for you for oh. our next episode this week. Okay. I just want to leave this term with you because I'm guessing you haven't spent a lot of time studying it. You ready? You ready for the term? Yeah. yeah. Corpus linguistics. Yes. You're correct. <laughs> I don't know it's what, what that is. It's what we're doing this week. Get excited. <laughs> it's amazing. Okay, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to have to um, do a little research before we get started. Or otherwise, I'll just be sitting there <laughs> watching you talk about it with our guest. So 
we're going to bring on a, a, a relatively new student of corpus linguistics. He happens to be a member of Article 3. I think this will be a treat. Yeah. No, I'm looking forward to it. I always like to learn on our own podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So tune in uh, next Thursday for Corpus Linguistics. Uh, I'm thinking it has to something to do with dead bodies. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's not at all what that means. Okay. No, it's not corpses linguistics. It's (laughs) corpus. Okay. But tune in Thursday uh, for corpus linguistics and other things and other things. Uh, And thank you for listening today. Please rate us. Please subscribe. Please check out thedispatch.com. As I said, and as I said, we'll be back Thursday morning. (laughs) 